Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. Thanks for being here. I'm Matt Greer, standing in for Chris Hill, who will be back next week. I'm joined in studio, as always, by Motley Fool senior analysts James Early, Ron Gross, and Seth Jason. Guys, always good to see you. Hey, Mac. Hey, Mac. Wow, you're on the wrong side of the glass, man. I am on the wrong side of the glass, and I should note that, you know, we've got a bit of a sick crew here. James, say something to the good people out there. Hi, guys. Uh, I'm a little stuffed up. Okay. Uh, I don't care about what James says. And Mac, you're just coming off a a two-week absence too, right? I'm coming off three weeks of of viral pink eye. I would rather have you on the opposite side of the glass. I will be doing the entire show in a hazmat outfit. That's that's a smart move. You're a smart man. Okay, there's a lot to talk about this week. Microsoft has new phone software. Google has big earnings. And some big banks have some big problems. Um, We'll also talk to Columbia University professor Dixon DePommier about something called vertical farming. And we'll share some stocks on our radar. But as always, we begin with the big macro. On Friday, the government reported that retail sales for September were better than expected. Now, Seth Jason, you are our retail guru here. What does that mean for investors? Oh, it means that you, you need to go to the boring uh, Commerce Department Census Bureau website and actually read the, uh, the the press release on this because there's interesting information there for investors. All in all, this is a good report. I'll get the, the, the conclusion all the way at the beginning. Um, one thing to watch out for is that gas stations uh, were up 8.2%. That generally just means we're all paying more for gasoline. But there was strength in a lot of kind of stores where, where we haven't seen it for a while, like building materials and furniture, which, which is a little unusual, surprises me. And as usual, electronics and appliance stores uh, doing better than just about everybody else. Now, James Early, also on Friday, Fed Chief Bernanke said that the economy was still growing too slowly. And he said the Fed was prepared to take additional steps. The Fed scared Mac because we've gone from having inflation as a prospect to having deflation, which has crippled the Japanese economy for over two decades. The Fed can't do much about deflation, Mac. Uh, to fight inflation, it can raise rates. Uh, to, to stimulate the economy, it can lower rates. But rates are almost uh, at zero now. So we're kind of like a heroin junkie who's blown it all, all our good veins. The Fed still wants to inject money into the economy for stimulus. So what it's been doing is taking money that is earned from these mortgage-backed securities that it bought as part of the bailout and going right over the Treasury and buying Treasury bonds. So it's sort of like the right hand buying bonds from the left. It's you know, it's, it's sort of an iffy practice, but at least it gets money into the economy, and hopefully we won't have massive deflation. The idea is if it's cheap enough, eventually people will try to take advantage of it, invest it, and that it, the economy will get moving again. But, but that hasn't happened yet. Ron Gross, what's your headline for the week? Well, Mac, I think we're at that point again where everyone's talking about mortgage rates. Everyone's either refinancing or talking about refinancing. I actually called my mortgage broker yesterday to get a quote. The average rate on a 30-year fixed mortgage has just dipped under 4.2%. And and we have to remember that that's actually tax-deductible interest. So the effective interest rate is even lower than that. Um, So we've got really cheap money out there right now. Interestingly, while that's fueled a refinancing boom, it hasn't really shown up in the sale of existing homes. We're not seeing a large increase uh, in those numbers. The 10% unemployment rate really kind of offsetting the cheap uh, cheap money that we have out there. Uh, we'll, we'll be interesting to see going forward if, if rates continue to go lower, if, if that can fuel uh, an increase in the recovery in the housing sector. This is Motley Fool Money. We're talking about some of the big headlines of the week. I'm joined by Ron Gross, James Early, Seth Jason, Matt Greer here. 
Not a good week for bank stocks. Um, concerns that banks may have cut corners in the foreclosure process. There are also concerns that some of those mortgage-backed securities may be defective. Now, James, <laughs> wait um, a minute. I thought that we knew they were defective. <laughs> there you go. There, there's a dog bites man story. Now, James, Bank of America has now suspended foreclosures in all 50 states. J.P. Morgan and some of the other big banks have halted some for, um, foreclosures as well. What does it mean for investors? Well, well, first off, Mac, it is kind of poetic justice, given that a lot of these borrowers got into these houses fraudulently in the first place. It's only fair that banks evict them fraudulently as well, right? <laughs> what do you say? <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Um, they, these were truly no-doc loans, it seems like, all the way through on both ends. Um, and if it is just an issue of, of banks fudging it when, when the paperwork does exist somewhere and it's just a matter of convenience, that's one thing. If they're actually if they actually don't have the mortgage note or if, or if they've been uh, faking them that's a big difference and that's a, a really bad thing but i think i think you did hit it on the on uh, hit the nail on the head mac with the the mortgage backed securities because yes it's going to spook buyers of foreclosed properties yes it's going to increase the cost of foreclosing but the big thing is who owns all these mortgages that are that are inside these securities? And, and we don't know. It could be a huge legal cost for banks. And well, well, actually, a, a lot of us may own them, right? You're right. Yeah, <laughs> the Fed. Yeah, taxpayers. As, as taxpayers. Well, well James, let, let's let's go back to that point about the mortgage-backed securities because on Wednesday, J.P. Morgan said that it it had set aside 1.3 billion of new reserves for litigation, and this is a quote, including those for mortgage-related matters. End quote. So what does that tell you when J.P. Morgan is setting aside $1.3 billion of new money, new reserves? Well, J.P. Morgan is typically the first bank to release earnings and, 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 and kind of get word out. And, and Jamie Dimon has been the first CEO to sort of publicly acknowledge that they're setting aside legal reserves for this. So, so yeah, it could be an indicator that the other banks are going to follow suit. Uh, speaking of reserves, though, I'll say this. J.P. Morgan... Uh, posted like a 20-30% gain in earnings, but on revenue down 11%. And, and I'll explain it like this. You can earn money the old-fashioned way, or you can earn money if you're a bank by simply reducing reserves. These are stockpile cookie jar accounts that you've built up against bad things happening. So JP Morgan brought their just overall loan loss reserves, forgetting about mortgage specifically, these reserves down from about $8 billion to about $3 billion. In other words, they've reduced it by $5 billion compared to last year. So and you do that just that's by not saying, a quality yeah, way. By saying things will be better than we thought. Exa they better be right. They yeah. better be right, is the point. I actually read those earnings, too, unusual for me. And, and I wanted to mention, uh, to get back to, to Main Street, is it in the J.P. Morgan uh, earnings, I think there was an interesting divergence that can't continue forever, which was that retail banking or the kind of banking that, that you know, schlubs like us engage in was pretty soft. Mortgage banking, checking, you know, checking accounts, savings accounts, all of that kind of stuff, whereas uh, the business banking was okay. But eventually business needs... Uh, the regular schlubs. And so I don't think that divergence can continue forever. So uh, you may find early uh, bellwethers by, by looking at some of these bank stock uh, uh, earnings releases in the coming quarters. Okay. So exit question, what would it take for you to invest in a bank stock right now? Uh, Mac, it would have to be outside the U.S. Yeah, I, I may nibble on maybe a, a community bank if I, if I really did the diligence on it and I had confidence in, in what what business lines they were in, but for the most part, I'd prefer to be on the sidelines. Yeah, insider information, but then if you trade on that, you go to jail, so. <laughs> Not a good best idea. Best to stay away. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. I'm Matt Greer, joined by Motley Fool analyst Seth Jason, James Early, and Ron Gross. We're talking about some of the week's big business headlines. Guys, the five-month moratorium on deepwater drilling was lifted this week. Um, James Early, 
What's your take on what that might mean? You know, Mac, I'm not a political guy, but I see this as, as a fairly political move on Obama's part. Um, you know, it was ended early. Uh, the, the major federal agencies that were investigating this have not yet finished their investigations. Uh, you know, it's the elections coming up very soon. We have midterm elections that are, the Democrats are not looking very strong in. And, and this helps to, to win the favor of a lot of Gulf voters. So, so that's what I see it um, in terms of the, of the stocks. I mean, I, I think it's kind of a neutral. I, I don't think the market expected any sort of prolonged moratorium. Um, so, so I think it's about priced in. Yeah. I mean, it was, everybody sort of knew it was a little bit of nonsense to begin with. It was completely arbitrary time frame, And the things they claimed they were going to do while this uh, moratorium was going on, uh, as James mentioned, haven't all been done. And the, the reality is that they can just drag their feet on permitting or uh, and, and on all sorts of other uh, bureaucratic matters in order to punish whoever they want to punish or, or maybe even to actually do good things. So uh, it, it'll all, it'll all, the devil will be in the details as usual. And Seth, you're a BP shareholder. We've talked about um, BP, of course, a lot on the show. Um, shares of BP have bounced back um, a little recently, but are still well off their 52-week highs. So are you bullish on BP right now? I think you, you have to be still. Uh, I think things look a lot better right now than, than they did when everybody was screaming that, you know, silliness like BP will be bankrupt within a month, people were saying at one point in time. But there's a lot of smaller companies, uh, oil services companies and others that really were crushed. And, uh, and we told you about some of those here and, and over at Hidden Gems, the service I run. And those have also bounced back pretty well and should do fine in the long term as, as we sort of forget about this. We'll hold it right there for now. Coming up, is Microsoft's new phone software a game changer? Should AOL and Yahoo get hitched? And how's that whole YouTube thing working out for Google? You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Money is honey. Where can my honey be? This is Motley Fool Money. Matt Greer stepping in for Chris Hill this week. I'm joined by Motley Fool senior analyst James Early, Ron Gross, and Seth Jason. We're talking about some of the week's big business headlines. Google reported a better than expected 32% increase in quarterly profits, and the stock was up sharply on Friday. Now, Ron Gross, Google is a holding in the portfolio you manage here at The Molly Fool. So what's your take on the earnings? So, Mac, these look pretty good, I think. Um, the, the, the big headline here is that Google looks like it's perhaps not just a search engine story any longer. We're seeing a uh, Real interesting things coming out of the mobile ad sales, um, uh, the display ad business, the display ads, uh, they look to have an annualized run rate of maybe $2.5 billion in sales. Mobile search, it looks like it has a run rate of $1 billion. Um, these are things we actually don't have priced into our valuation model at Million Dollar Portfolio, the service I manage here. Um, so it looks like perhaps we're being a little too conservative and we need to start giving uh, Google credit for some of these uh, other businesses. But it still adds. In, it still adds. It still no adds. what it's, it is, it's ads. It's ads. It's, okay. it's an advertising model. It, uh, that's what they do. Um, let's not forget about the, the fortress-like balance sheet they have here also, $33 billion worth of cash. Um, they've actually done a, a nice job of... Um, making some good tuck-in acquisitions, some acquisitions of technology. Um, Android is a good example of that. Uh, and the stock looks, uh, even even um, being up sharply on this news, the stock looks good from here. And perhaps more importantly, Ron, do you approve of Google Street View? Is it <laughs> you just look at your house? Is that, is that you know what? I've book? tried and I can't see my house, oh, which kind right. of angers I tried me and I couldn't see You have like a palace like either. way back from the road with a big... <laughs> Stonewall. You can't see the gates block the view. One of the things that Google said this week, Ron, in in that earnings um, report, they said that the sale of those display ads that you talked about um, was on pace to bring in $2.5 billion um, this year. Now, that includes YouTube. So, my question is, is YouTube, has YouTube been a good investment for Google? It looks like it 
could be a good investment down the road. We're bringing in, we have the ability to bring in significant revenue here. I don't think we're seeing profitability just yet, which of course we need to see. Because nobody's um, going to tell you what it costs to serve all that video for free, <laughs> yeah. right? Right, but, but it, it looks like certainly this could be something down the road. And we also learned this week that Google is spending a lot. They hired 1,500 employees last quarter. They've hired 3,500 new employees this year. Um, and this week we learned more about their plans to invest in wind farms and computer-driven cars. Now, I'm all for diversification, but as someone who owns the <laughs> stock, <laughs> does, does that worry you at hey, all? I, I'm hoping these are not big investments. We are not pricing them into our valuation, and we will never be. Um, but you got to pay to play. They're uh, staffing up. Uh, this is a pretty high growth business uh, still, um, even with its large size. And uh, it looks like they're doing a nice job. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Matt Greer here, joined by Motley Fool analyst Seth Jason, James Early, and Ron Gross, talking about some of the week's big business headlines. Seth Jason, I know you're excited about this next story. Microsoft Woo! has a new phone software, Windows Phone 7. And and I got to tell you the ads the website it's it's some it's some good looking stuff. It's not um, much of a surprise. Yeah, we've seen it for a few months now. Yeah, they're saying they're promising um, better integration with Microsoft Office. Um, they're saying that it has built-in social networking and gaming capabilities. So the question for you, Seth Jason, is: Is it a game changer? Does it allow Microsoft to get back into the phone game? I think it should. You can you can never tell how a product is going to be received. Remember the poor Palm Pre, which got great reviews, and then four people bought it. Um, so the the interesting thing about Windows Phone, I think, is that it, it hits the sweet spot between the iPhone and Android phones, which is that if you want an iPhone, uh, you're kind of stuck with one piece of hardware every year or whatever it is that Steve Jobs decides that you deserve a, a new and improved piece of hardware. And Android, you don't have that problem. There's all sorts of different hardware. If you you want a slide-out keyboard, a phone that runs Android, you can get that. You can also get that with Windows Phone, but at the same time, the Windows Phone OS is a little more like the iPhone operating system. In other words, they're not going to let carriers junk up the operating system, which is a problem with Android. And if you want an Android phone, I talked about this a few shows ago, you have to figure out, do you want the HTC skin thing or do you want what the Motorola Droid does? And you actually have to sit around and worry about this. And, and I'm kind of nerdy and, and I don't no. care about it at all. I don't want to learn that. So uh, that's the opportunity they have. Another uh, really potential uh, sticky feature of this is the integration with Xbox. Also, it's just got the tightest integration with Microsoft Office, which is the reason I've actually waited for this and not gotten an iPhone or an Android phone. So does it move the needle? or? Well, mobile OS never moved the needle a ton for, for Microsoft anyway, even when they had much larger market share. The real story will be if they can use this to uh, grab more uh, search dollars with uh, their Bing search engine, which is, is pretty good and is ahead of Google in a lot of ways, like mapping. And, you know, Microsoft, uh, its current price, has very, very little growth built in. Yeah. It, They're it, priced it, for it, this to fail. It, right. So if, if they fire on this or, or any of those cylinders here, the stock could be really interesting going forward. And the duct tape around the phone will be optional on this. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but do my Zune apps transfer? That's what I want to know. Okay. Well, it, you know, a lot of it's built on the Zune OS. So the, the OS now that everybody is actually praising is really cool, comes directly from the Zune. The Zune team worked on it. So it's sort of funny that this much maligned media device is yeah, actually... Yeah, for those who don't know, the yeah. many who don't know, the Zune is like a... a it's failed. They don't do any more. It's a Microsoft. But they still do them, and they still have a lot of fans. But it was an MP3 player that everybody made fun of, uh, but it basically gave birth to this new phone OS. The Browns are in. 
I just that's never, what I have, and that's going to oh, be a collector's Seth. item. Oh, I, I, <laughs> all y'all are going to be coming to me. Ooh, Seth, in the future, you're gonna be, ooh, oh. Seth, please give me some money. I'm poor, and I'm going to be rich from my Zune, our own Zune Brown collector's Zune. item. <laughs> okay, let's talk a little <laughs> wheeling and dealing. The Wall Street Journal reported this week that AOL and some private equity firms may team up in a bid to buy Yahoo. Ron. <laughs> here, here, here's here's a mathematical <laughs> He's a big uh, fan. Uh, here's, here's a mathematical Google question: What does AOL plus Yahoo equal? Uh, I, probably a disaster. Who's who's better than making uh, acquisitions and mergers than AOL? Yeah, I mean, come on, they're, they're, they're amazing at it. So the the street was all hot and heavy when this first came out. It's starting to die down even even now. Uh, I tend to doubt that this deal will actually happen. Um, Anytime, perhaps, maybe at all. It doesn't. It doesn't look like uh, it makes that much sense to me. You can always find that dreaded word synergies and and, and create some value. But I, I tend to think that this will not happen. I think the bigger picture here is the M and A activity in general that we're seeing. Pick Mergers up. and acquisitions, Ron. Yes, sir. Spell it out for I, us. Sorry, I don't the jargon. <laughs> um, it, whether you're looking for uh, strategic acquisitions, like Intel buying McAfee, or starting to see the private equity players step up again. There's a lot of money on the sidelines here. Uh, companies have really bloated balance sheets. Private equity guys have been hanging on to cash for quite some time. We're starting to see the mergers and acquisitions activity really heat up, and I think the next 12, 24 months we'll, we'll continue to see that grow. I think it's a sign of desperation. If you think about these two, what is the what is the Yahoo business? You know, in a nutshell, what is the AOL business? Defunct portals that people don't need anymore because they're interacting with the internet through things like iPhone and specific apps. Does anybody need a Yahoo portal or an AOL portal? I mean, who needs that? Not anymore. Nobody. No. no. And finally, Starbucks wants to bring you slower service. Yes, slower service. According to the Wall Street Journal, Starbucks has asked its baristas, the people making the coffee, um, to prepare two drinks at a time at most. So don't don't do nine different things. Do two things. Seth Jason, good move for Starbucks. It sounds like the dumbest move I've ever heard of. You're telling you're telling your your people who run your stores to be less efficient. They claim that they'll be able to move more people through more quickly. I I really doubt it. I think part of the problem that Starbucks has is they want to believe that they're an experience and that they're, you know, this Italian coffee bar and that it should be like when you're in Italy and the guy makes your espresso, but they're not. They're they're an assembly line for reasonably good coffee. They should just live with that and get us through the line and get us out the door. Did the Rice Krispie treat behind the container, uh, was that the clue that it wasn't an Italian coffee <laughs> shop? <laughs> yeah, that was my tip off. Thanks, guys. James, Seth, and Ron will be back later in the show to talk about some of the stocks on their radar. And you can always email us about Starbucks, about Google, about anything that we talked about. That email is radio at fool.com. That's radio at fool.com. I love my Starbucks. I love my Joe. Coming up, we'll talk to Columbia University professor Dixon DePommier about a new type of farming that could change everything. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Matt Greer stepping in for Chris Hill this week. Vertical farming. It's an idea that could have profound implications for the way food is produced. Columbia University professor Dixon DePommier is the man behind that idea, and he recently talked with Motley Fool Money's Chris Hill. Let's start with just the basic question of what is vertical farming and how does it work? Well, um, vertical farming so far is a concept and it uh, began about 11 years ago in a classroom, believe it or not. And uh, just try to think back to your own college days as to how many things actually made it out into the <laughs> real world. 
and you'll get uh, a hint as to how surprised everybody is at the uh, fact that this is almost about to happen. So it began as a, a, a rooftop gardening project that the students picked themselves, and uh, it didn't actually turn out so great because there's not a lot of rooftops to feed 2.3 million Manhattaners, let's say, for instance, or Manhattanites, I should have referred to them as. Um, <coughs> but I, I then challenged them. I said, you know, well, maybe you can take this idea and move it inside of abandoned buildings and make use of all those floors, let's say a 10-story or a 20-story or a 5-story building, you could improve uh, greatly the, the amount of crops that you could produce if there were some way of doing that. And of course, there is some way of doing that because that's what the greenhouse industry is all about. So that's how the idea started. So <clears throat> uh, it has evolved to the point now of um, enticing designers and, and architects and engineers uh, to the table to sit down and decide actually how to do this. Now, you know, I've I've been to farms. Um, there's there's a whole lot of dirt there. I mean, yeah. are, are are vertical farms? I mean, there's no soil. None, <laughs> absolutely none. It's all done hydroponically. And there's a newer technology called aeroponics, which takes hydroponics to the next level, and actually sprays a mist of nutrient laden uh, water onto the roots of the plants. They're perfectly happy as long as you feed them properly, and they don't require soil or food. They just require it as a solid matrix. So if you can supply that in some other way, and so certainly the hydroponics industry has found lots of clever ways of doing that, um, you don't have any soil at all. So you don't have a weight problem if you're going to put this into a room, say, for instance, it's not designed for soil-based agriculture. So are we just talking about, when, when it comes to vertical farms, are we just talking about fruits and vegetables, or are we talking about animals too? Because if you tell me that these vertical farms are going to smell a whole lot better than the average farm, then I'm in. I'm sold. <laughs> well, I can promise you that they'll smell better because we're going to keep out the four-legged varieties and let in uh, chickens, for instance, and ducks and geese and um, aquaculture. You can raise fish and, of course, like tilapia and uh, some saltwater species of fish can be raised this way as well. Uh, crustaceans like shrimp, uh, freshwater and saltwater shrimp. There's a whole... Uh, industry out there that's actually doing all of this already. So nothing's impossible. I think the four-legged livestock problem has to stay on the grasslands and in the farms, unfortunately. I was going to say, because, I mean, how, how would you deal with things like waste? Yeah, well, haha. Uh, that's not a good word for us. Uh, we don't consider waste waste. We consider waste as unresolved uh, energy recycling. So <clears throat> there are lots of strategies for taking what's left over after you eat something or harvest something and converting that back into energy, uh, not at 100% of what it was before, of course, but, I mean, you have a loss to the instrument that actually does this, like an incinerator, a high-tech incinerator, but you do get uh, a return that's uh, different than what the outdoor farms get. You're listening to Motley Full Money. We're talking with Dr. Dixon de Pommier. His new book is The Vertical Farm, Feeding the World in the 21st Century. Um, in the book, one of the things that you write about is uh, a 30-story building, one uh, city block in New York City. Uh, I have to believe that the startup cost of a vertical farm is going to be enormous. Yeah, well, that's, uh, this was a think piece that I gave to my class, and I asked them to feed 50,000 people, and I wanted to know how big a building that would have actually turned out to be. So uh, it's not a realistic uh, idea, but it's, uh, it gives you an idea of what's possible uh, in such a very, very small agricultural footprint, 
to feed 50,000 people. All you would need is a building, of course, of enormous size, but only one square city block. And that New York City's got a large uh, footprint in terms of that. But when you consider how much land outside is used to feed uh, those people, for instance, the entire city of New York uh, requires the state of Virginia's landmass in order to feed themselves. And that's an enormous footprint. And uh, we're trying to reduce that. Now, at The Motley Fool, when we look at news stories or new technologies, one of the ways we look at them is, okay, so if this is going to happen, if this new technology is going to be successful, well, well, who's going to benefit from that in right. terms of companies and industries? So sure. who, who are the winners going to be if vertical farming takes off? Well, I think city planners and cities will be big winners because they can use a lot of uh, abandoned properties that now are going to waste. Uh, recovering land from brownfield fields, for instance, and uh, putting buildings in places where nobody wants to live anyway. Uh, so the biggest winners would be the citizens that live within a radius of those vertical farms. But if you're asking for specific industries, I think uh, the hydroponics industries... Um, are infant in their in their growth rate right now because of the lack of um, a proper model for integrating this into an urban setting and what this offers them is a new venue for their technologies and i think the hydroponic industry is really going to go crazy once this thing takes off and um, so I, I think that would be my best answer and also people that uh, want reasonably priced um, you know beyond organically grown safe to eat 24-hour a day, 365 days a year of food, this uh, gives that to them as well. So the consumer will be, will end up as a big beneficiary here. One of the things that you write about is that vertical farms will allow us to eliminate the use of pesticides, yeah. fertilizers, and herbicides. Um, when I hear something like that, I can't <laughs> help but think of chemical companies like Monsanto yeah, or, yeah. or fertilizer producers like Potash, Mosaic, Ag sure. Agrium. They, they can't be happy about that. <laughs> Well, you know, I, <clears throat> in the outset, I would agree with you because uh, we've thought a lot about this, too. You know, we're not in the business of putting other people out of business, and I don't see this as a disruptive technology in terms of Monsanto or other large corporations like Cargill. Uh, they could make other things besides what they're making now and make just as much money. For instance, they could make chemically defined diets for these plants and charge just as much for that as they now have to charge for the production of pesticides, herbicides, and fertilizers. So uh, a, a, a switch on a dime, so to speak, for their product, using their chemical know-how to produce well-defined, uh, you know, toxin-free, heavy metal-free food, I think they'd end up as the winners, and they'd, they would end up as the heroes rather than the goats that they are right now, unfortunately. So you're not, no one from big agriculture is leaning on you? You're not getting late-night phone calls from <laughs> ConAgra or Archer Daniels Midland? Not yet. And, in fact, I made these presentations to the United States Department of Agriculture where I thought I'd have to use a bulletproof vest in order to go in the room. And, and they not only welcomed me with open arms, but they actually lamented the fact that they hadn't thought of doing something like this sooner. So <clears throat> the reasons why the United States Department of Agriculture is concerned is that they enable other countries in their own agricultural situations to uh, go forward. And there are lots of countries out there that are in great need of agricultural solutions. Just today, for instance, I saw something on um, Yahoo News, <coughs> which is, of course, the ultimate set setting for news stories, right, that there's an enormous outbreak of locusts right now in Australia, of all places, eating up all these wonderful crops that they finally had a good year for. 
Now, you know, that's not going to happen when you grow your food indoors. You can actually lock out locusts quite nicely. And the other other things you can do with this, too, is to keep out plant diseases. So there's no need for pesticides or herbicides. If you can make the food supply secure indoors, if we can do it for people isolated in hospitals <clears throat> that have their immune systems compromised or that have an infectious disease that you don't want to catch, uh, if we can do that easily now in, uh, in healthcare settings, we can certainly give some health care to our plants that we eat as well. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. We're talking with Dr. Dixon de Pommier. His book is The Vertical Farm. Uh, one of your biggest supporters is not from the world of science. He's from the world of music, and that's Sting, Indeed. who has secured the rights to the Vertical Farm movie. Is this going to be a documentary? <laughs> yes, uh, it it certainly will be. The, the first um, customer, so to speak, who agrees to actually... Uh, sit down and work out the uh, the plans for a prototype vertical farm, which we imagine would be the first uh, iteration of this uh, new concept, would be the beneficiary of a documentary film as to how all of that came about. And, uh, you know, Sting is very passionate about the rainforest, and he sees this as a way of saving the rainforest, because if you can supply food to people in another way, they don't have to encroach into these beautiful, diverse hardwood forests of the tropics. What do you think the timing is looking like, and and do you have a, a couple of finalists, for lack of a better word, in terms of a location for this uh, yeah. pilot project? Yeah, we, we actually do. <laughs> you know, I'm sort of uh, hoping that you would have asked that question, uh, and I'm glad you did, because um, we've been in discussions now, and when I say we, uh, there are some obvious associates of mine as well who have... Um, uh, gotten together and said, you know, we, this would make an interesting company if we could um, parlay this into a consulting firm that would teach people how to proceed in terms of, of making indoor food production uh, a, a livelihood for them. We've been um, fortunate to be invited to the table in Jordan, in uh, Abu Dhabi, in Dubai, in Qatar, um, in those situations where those countries have virtually no soil to speak of to feed their people and still great need for food security and food um, safety issues, uh, those would be at the top of my list for those that are going to start to do this first. But I've also been in touch with the cities of Chicago and Seattle and Portland and uh, San Francisco and New York City, and, and I haven't received any um, flack from those people at all. They've, they've all been enthusiastic about the concept. It's just that um, you know generating the funding for this will be... Uh, biggest difficulty. And in Newark, I should have mentioned Newark also. Newark has expressed deep interest in wanting to do this. All right, Dr. DePommier, before we let you get away, we have to wrap up with a round of buy, sell, or hold. Uh-oh. So, oh, no, this, this is going to be fun. You'll love this. All right, it's the biggest scientific challenge confronting New York City today. Buy, sell, or hold bed bugs. Ah, now you're, now you're into a deep area of interest of mine. I'm, I'm actually a trained parasitologist. <coughs> I would buy bed bug control I wouldn't buy the bait buds themselves, but I would certainly buy controls that actually worked. Um, and we're still looking for those because it's a, it's an intractable problem of uh, dense populations. Yeah, I was going to say, you, you, you can buy the controls, but from what I've read about the problem, <laughs> yeah. uh, right now I'm buying bed bugs because they, they look like they're not going anywhere. I see your point. All right. If I'm a bed bug, I buy into this one. No problem. <laughs> All right. This is really big on Facebook. Uh-oh. Buy, seller hold, Farmville. Oh, I'm going to buy that. In an instant, I'll buy that in a second, and I'll incorporate uh, the vertical farm concept into it. And we'll ride off into the sunset on that one. <laughs> and if you throw in Lego, I'll, I'll do that one, too. Perfect. 
Uh, and finally, this is a license plate motto that has a lot of people scratching their heads. <laughs> Buy, sell, or hold New Jersey as the Garden State. <laughs> well, I happen to live in New Jersey. And in, when we gave our presentation to Newark, we actually used the motto, bring the garden back to the Garden State. But of course, we'd you know, bring it back in another form. I, I would leave the Garden State as a natural wonderland and incorporate vertical farming. So I'd, I'd buy the state, but I would convert it back to what it used to be before we got there. Congratulations, Doctor. I think that's the first time anyone's used the words New Jersey and natural wonderland in the same sentence. <laughs> the book is The Vertical Farm, Feeding the World in the 21st Century. It is an absolutely fascinating idea. Good luck with the book, Doctor. It's available everywhere. Dr. Dixon DePommier, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. Green Acres is a place to be. Just give me that countryside Coming up, we've got some stocks on our radar. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Penny. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Matt Greer here, joined in studio by our trio of senior analysts, Seth Jason, James Early, and Ron Gross, and Steve Broido, our man on the other side of the glass. Steve, you over there still? Still here, yep. Okay, guys, it's now time to share some stocks on your radar. James Early, what do you got? Mac, let's talk about soiled linens, or more specifically, a company that oh, changes them. Let's not. This is, oh, we're going to do it. <laughs> He's been this to my is house again. Healthcare Services Group. The ticker is HCSG. This is a company that provides housekeeping, linen service, uh, food, things like that to nursing homes, hospitals, retirement homes, places like that. 3.7% yield, which I like as a dividend investor. A billion dollar market cap, meaning it's a fairly small company. And while I, I like this company, I, I keep always finding it a little bit overpriced by my model, but it just keeps rising up. So I was going to say, I'm, James, we've had that on our watch list at Hidden Gems for a couple of hundred percent now. <laughs> so yeah, be careful how, how be careful when you look at the valuation. Exactly. I mean, it, it's valuation is great, but if, yeah, if I bought this a while ago, uh, I'd be rich now. Steve, do you have a question for James? Sure. How, how might healthcare reform affect this company? You know, that's a very good question. That's, um, what, I'm, that's what I'm here, James. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't see it. I don't see it reducing uh, uh, demand for, for any of these services. Mostly that they're on the retirement end, um, you know, w- which is is going to be pretty steady. I, I don't think that's going to be going to be uh, negatively impacted at all. Actually, Ron Gross. Well, Mac, I think uh, I've been interested lately in Kellogg's ticker symbol K. We're all familiar with Kellogg's. Um, Tony the Tiger, Pop Tarts, Eggos. Big K, right? Yeah, big K. That's <laughs> Kellogg's isn't typically cheap, but lately they've had some missteps, some serial recalls, some ego inventory issues. Some, <laughs> some, uh, <laughs> why it's true. That's it's true. true. You, you can't buy ego. Yeah, you can now. True. It I, wasn't I, just I, what you said. It was the way you said it. Like it's it was, true. <laughs> I love it. It's so I, serious. I, I buy the whole grain egos for my boys, and, and they've been right? out. And I'm right. like, what is this? So it's not like enriched plutonium. They had no waffles. Sh- they had to shut down a manufacturing facility for a while, and we couldn't get our egos. Um, at my household as well. So the stock's actually off about 10% um, uh, this year from from its high mid-year. And that could create an opportunity here um, to pick up a a company with fantastic brands, a 3% dividend yield. Uh, It's not normally cheap, but we might uh, have an opportunity here. 
Steve, what's your Kellogg's question? Uh, my question is, you know, the whole grain uh, thing, they're, they're, they're really promoting that cereals are now made with whole grains. Does that, is that sort of set off by the, you know, there's still two pounds of sugar in each box? Is that, that is, what, is, as, what do whole grains do for you then? Well, every time I come home uh, with a box of, you know, frosted uh, Eggo, you know, whole wheat, my wife says, you got to read the labels. The first part yeah. of the label has to say whole wheat. Hey, but cholesterol free, right? But uh, my kids won't eat it unless it's covered in sugar. What are you going to do? Okay, there you go. Seth Jason, what's your stock? Uh, Kendall International, KNDL. This is a small CRO, clinical research organization. They do drug trials, help companies do drug research. And this is a, an expensive uh, thing for drug companies to do. And sometimes it takes some specific knowledge. And Kendall uh, ha has a lot of smaller uh, pieces that accomplish this in various places. Uh, it's uh, a pretty small company. It used to be a lot bigger. They kind of choked on a big acquisition they did before the economy uh, you know, dropped out from under everybody. And so they haven't been doing that well because uh, drug between the, the failing economy and, uh, and uh, health care reform, drug companies cut back a lot on research. And so this is, is not a stock for, as they say, the business uh, widow and orphan money because this is a stock that could go bad if, if this debt situation doesn't work out. However, if uh, they return to their winning ways uh, of the past and the cycle turns a little bit, which, which it should when the economy turns, then this is also one of those stocks that could you know, go up three, four times in value over, over the course of a couple of years. So uh, you need to read the, uh, f read the filings yourself and, and decide which side you want to place your bet. And uh, at Hidden Gems, we own some of it, but keep the position small. Okay, Steve, what do you got for Seth? Well, we know Barbie has always really been a huge hit, but is there really enough demand for the, the Ken doll brand? <laughs> for the Ken doll brand. <laughs> Let's hope so. Hey, actually, this is for those of you wow. out there who are feminist like days. That Steve, is solid. That'll man. come out in post production. That is great. No, that is that is great A material. Yeah, that, that, was, that was not scripted. I think that was just <laughs> off the cuff. Named, named for the founder, uh, uh, Candace Kendall, woman CEO. Well, there you go. Equal opportunity over at Hidden Gems. And Steve, of those three stocks, which one are you most intrigued by? Um, I think I think Kellogg's is. I certainly oh. understand the brand best, so love cereal. So, <laughs> well, there you have it. Steve Broido has spoken. James Early, Ron Gross, Seth Jason, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Mac. Thanks, Mac. And um, I should add here that um, Ron's service, um, the Motley Fool's Million Dollar Portfolio, will reopen to new members for the first time in a year. Um, that's going to happen next month, and you can get more information on that by going to mdp.fool.com. That's M as in Mac, D as in dog, P as in Penelope Pitstop. Um, mdp.fool.com. Thanks, Mac. Guys, thanks again for joining us, and thanks to our special guest, Columbia University Professor Dixon DePommier, the author of The Vertical Farm. If you missed any part of the show, you can find it at our website. That's motleyfullmoney.com, motleyfullmoney.com. Our engineer is Steve Broido. Our host is Chris Hill. Chris will be back next week. I'm Matt Greer, the producer and sometimes host. And the pink eye is getting better. James, how's your cold? It's uh, feeling better already, Nick. You're sounding better. You've got a little Deborah Winger thing still, but I think that's a compliment. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.